Glad you're here. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank You for the blessed occasion of the gathering of Your people, and we thank You for the promise of Your Son that when His people gather in His name, He'll be with us. Oh, Father, I honor that promise. Be with us this day. Would You give us what we need? Oh, Father, would You help us? You've raptured our hearts by Your love. You've drawn us. by Your grace. Oh, Father, help us to press on, to enter into Your rest. We ask You this in the name of Your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Faith, hope, love. Which is the greatest? You can answer. Yes. The Bible says love is. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Saints, listen. Brothers and sisters, do you know, do you understand that to love the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, should be the preeminent focus of our entire lives. Do you understand that, Christian? Your job, my job, is to be a lover of Jesus. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. The beloved apostles' first epistle in chapter 4. <clears throat> Look there to verse 7. And please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. The beloved apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. 
By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. You may be seated. Let me remind you of something, friend. Christian people have problems. That statement is no news to you. Christian people have problems. One of my most influential life mentors used to say, when people get saved, they're still people. And people have problems. When people get saved, they're still people. And people have problems. Christians are people. And so, Christian people have all the problems that people have. They have problems with their finances. They have problems with their children. They have problems with their health. They have problems with their cars. Problems with their jobs. Problems with their houses, not again. Problems with their bosses, problems with their spouses. Christian people got lots of problems. They have all the problems that are the common lot of human beings in a world cursed by Almighty God on account of sin. Now notice I did not say a sin-cursed world, though certainly this world is sin-cursed, cursed with sin. But this world is cursed by Almighty God on account of man's sin. You know that? This present evil world where we live is under A divine curse, a curse that abides, a curse that fell at Eden. And friend, listen, our Savior is removing that curse. Eric, He is making all things new. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In the world ye shall have tribulation. He said, In this world you're going to have trouble. Tribulation is trouble. Tribulation is bad trouble. Great trouble. Tribulation is a condition of affliction and distress. Listen, the English word tribulation comes to us from the Latin tribulatio, tribulatio. And the great tribulation of the early Christian church during the Roman persecution, one of the gruesome tortures designed by the pagans for the Christians was to stake them to the ground and then to drive a Roman tribular over them. Now, the Roman tribular was a grain harvesting or threshing device, like a farm implement. And the effect of this great wickedness was to torture, was to cause great distress and anguish to the one so tormented. That was great tribulation, friend. And so, beloved, listen, hear the lies of the TV preachers, if you will. But I tell you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, told us plainly that in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have trouble. The best day of your life was when you became a Christian. And let me tell you what, that was the start of trouble. Start of a new kind of trouble. Good people, Christian people, have trouble. 
They have troubles from without and they have troubles from within. They have troubles that come upon them in the sovereign dispensation of the secret will of God. But worse than that, friend, listen, they have troubles of their own making. Have you ever had trouble of your own making? Don't you lie. I have. I I surely have. And, And beloved, listen, it's the worst kind of trouble. Christian people have self-induced problems. Do you believe that? They have troubles that they bring upon themselves because of the choices that they've made. Bad choices. Wrong choices. Sinful choices. You know know that your choices and my choices, they're very important. Do you understand this? The choices that you make in your life are very, very important. Think with me for a minute about trouble. Not the trouble that comes from without. Not the trouble that sweeps in unannounced like a whirlwind and makes wreckage of a life. Not that kind of trouble. That trouble is the lot of all men. But think with me for a minute about self-induced Christian trouble. Think with me about that trouble that no one else knows about but you. Think about the horrific tribulation of a troubled mind. Let's limit the scope of our focus this morning to that internal trouble that is self-induced. That peculiar trouble that we bring upon ourselves by the choices that we make. I'll ask you again, have you ever had trouble of your own making? Beloved, listen, Uh, (laughs) I remind you that when you hear a sermon from me, it's a sermon I've already preached to myself. So if I indict you, then don't take it personal. I've already indicted myself. The peculiar trouble that we bring upon ourselves by the choices that we make is the worst kind of trouble. Because listen, right when we're in the middle of it, if our eyes have been opened, we'll see this is my own doing. And friend, that is torture. That is a tribulation to the mind. Look where I am. Oh my goodness. Edward, you did that to yourself. That's tribulation, friend. Now please listen carefully. This kind of trouble, that kind of trouble I just described, that kind of trouble is the result, please listen, it's a result of a lack of love. It's the result of a lack of of love. I'm saying the internal trouble that we Christians experience when we make wrong choices, that trouble is ultimately rooted in a lack of love. Now, let me tell you what I want us to do this morning and then we'll be finished. I want us to understand how it is that most of the internal trouble that we Christians experience is rooted in a lack of love. I'll explain it. And then I want us to ask the question, is there a remedy? But think with me for a minute about the status of the ungodly and compared to the status of the godly. The Status of the unbelieving, ungodly, compared to our status, Christians, believers. The Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve fell by sin in the Garden of Eden, that their innocence was lost. 
And their eyes were open not only to good, but also to evil. They thought they understood a lot more than they did. Mostly Eve just said, oh, I'm naked. You remember the scene? God said, ye shall surely die. On the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Satan said, yeah, not surely. Nah, nah. And Eve believed the lie and she ate the peach. And Adam wickedly and willfully ate the peach. And they both died. They died. They died a spiritual death. And they set in motion the active curse of God which brought death to every corner of the cosmos. And the effects of death began to appear all around them. The wrath of the Almighty was stirred and God wrote death right into their DNA. And so they sinned and they shriveled and they shrunk and they wasted and they died. But listen, that wasn't the end of it. No, they passed on their genetic plague to their children. The Bible teaches that though Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, after the fall, the Bible says, the children they begat were in their own image. Genesis 5.3, the Holy Scriptures say concerning Adam, he, quote, begat a son in his own likeness after his image. And so the corruption continued. And the plague infected every single descendant of that first Adam. And so every single son of Adam since the fall, every single daughter of Eve after the fall has been born into a state of fallenness. Born physically alive but spiritually dead, dead to the things of God. Born dead, doomed, and damned. Listen, the the effects of this fall are ubiquitous. I like that word, ubiquitous. That means everywhere. In the words of that 20th century prophet Robert Zimmerman, Everything is broken. And we were stone cold dead when we stepped out of the womb. Listen, in this precipitous fall, the very definition of the word natural has changed. Do you understand? What's natural has changed. From the pristineness of the original creation. When God looked at Adam and said, very good. To a state where now Paul says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 How can a natural now fallen man understand the things of the Spirit? Paul says, he can't. Do you see? These are two different men. What was once natural is not now natural. Do you understand? The course of nature, you know that phrase, the course of nature now for man is birth Sin, trouble, death. Birth, sin, trouble, death. A lot to look forward to, friend. Course of nature. Sin pays its wages. That's what's natural now. And listen, 
The fallen nature that Adam passes on to his sons, it is utterly corrupt. It's tainted, spoiled, broken. The corruption of the natural fallen man is so complete that, listen, even the seeming good things that he does are corrupt. King Solomon tells us in Proverbs 21.4, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Plowing? Yeah. Why? Because he does it with a wicked mind. Everything he does is wicked. Why? Because he's wicked. You know why sinners sin? Because they're sinners. And that's what sinners do. The natural man, listen, cannot do righteousness. His nature has him trapped in a whirlpool, yea, in a cesspool of sin. And, friend, I hate to ruin your morning, but it's even worse than this. The great apostle Paul teaches that in addition to this fallenness and deadness of the natural, unbelieving man, something else is also at work. Satanic blindness. A spiritual curse has been placed upon men. And this invisible spiritual curse is so powerful that apart from a supernatural work of God, there is no way that a man or a woman can even believe the gospel. Listen, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5. Listen, that is the status of a lost man. Bound by a nature, bound by his own nature to sin, hell bent. Sin is the biggest joy of his life. Spiritually dead in trespasses and sin, and satanically blinded, lest he should see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, he couldn't believe the gospel if he wanted to. And he doesn't want to. Friend, that is the status of natural man now that nature has changed. That's the status of lost man. Listen, that is the status of our friends and our loved ones and our Neighbors who have not bowed the knee and the heart to Jesus of Nazareth. And and listen, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be able to hear this without our hearts crying out to God in thanksgiving for His great grace to us. For what maketh us to differ from them? Grace. Grace, God's grace. And what about us? Remember, we're, we're making a comparison. What about us? What about our stature, Christians? The Bible teaches that in Christ, we are no longer dead. The Bible teaches that if we believe on our Lord Jesus Christ, we have, quote, been passed from death unto life. Red letters, Jesus of Nazareth, John 5, 24. The Bible teaches that if we have believed the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we have been resurrected from our state of spiritual death by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and that our sins have been forgiven, put away forgotten 
actively forgotten by God. I will remember them no more. The Bible teaches that our Savior is Jesus, the King, the divinely anointed one. And it teaches that this Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our Bibles teach us, listen friend, that Jesus of Nazareth is God. And it teaches us that He has taken away the law's condemnation. Somehow He's even nailed it to His cross. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to His cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. The Bible teaches that as the elect of God, listen friend, we are not even chargeable. We are not even chargeable with sin. You better watch out how you talk about Christians. They're not chargeable. Who could possibly charge them? It's God who has declared them just. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Answer, no one. Why? It is God who justifieth. Romans 8.33 The Bible teaches that when God saved us, He gave us a mind transplant. He took away our stony hearts. And you know that heart is a Hebraism for what we call mind he took away our stony hearts and He gave us tender hearts of flesh. He caused minds that used to be at constant enmity with Him to look upon Him now with love and affection. He changed our minds. And listen, these changed minds are no longer blinded by the curse of Satan. They've been set free from the curse and have been liberated to righteousness. The blessed Apostle Peter teaches that Christians actually have become, quote, partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. So, according to Peter, Christians now actually have the very nature of God communicated to them. They have God's nature implanted within them. And listen, obviously, I think it should be obvious, obviously the nature of God, the divine nature, is stronger than any sin nature. Right? It's a God thing. So Christian people have been set free from the bondage of sin inherent in the sin nature and they've been liberated to do righteousness. Let me, let me unchain you there. Why are you unchaining me? So you won't be chained to this sin. So you can go do right. And Paul says of these changed people, friend of us, he says, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 We have the mind of Christ. A mind transplant. And listen, just as Adam and Eve in the garden were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, there's a command for us Christians. Those who have been given this mind transplant, this divine nature, the mind of Christ, these people have now been commanded to love. We have been commanded to love. 
So let, let me rehearse for you what we just said. We've contrasted the radical bondage of the man or woman without Christ to the radical liberty of the man or woman who has the Spirit of Christ. And we've noted that with our receipt of God's nature in salvation comes a contemporaneous command to love. What do you want me to do? Love. Love. Do you remember our opening Scripture reading? We Christians are under a divine command to love. Thou shalt love. Beloved, please hear me. Can you see that it is only we Christians who can fulfill the commands of a holy God? It's only us, friend. Only Christians have been liberated from the tyranny of the sin nature. Uh, And listen, what in the world are we doing when we try to make lost men act like they're saved? That is a fool's errand, my friend. Why would we do that? It's foolishness. If a lost man does act like a saved man, well, he's just a good actor. In other words, we've made a hypocrite. And and, uh, listen, when you or I see apparent goodness from a lost man, we should rejoice. Because our expectation from that lost man, because we have a little bit of understanding of depravity, our expectation was evil. I mean, that's why civil laws are necessary, right? To subdue at least a little bit. The human depravity all around us. You better back the blue, friend. Because it's bad out there. Now what about us? Listen, what about us? We who have these changed minds. Well, for us, the great Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6 that we Christians don't have to sin. And please hear me very clearly. He doesn't teach that we won't sin, but He clearly teaches that we don't have to. We don't have to because we're no longer in bondage to sin. And, and beloved, please hear me this morning. If you are a Christian, you do not have to sin. If you are a Christian, you do not have to say, somebody should say amen. If you are a Christian, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. And Paul teaches, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6, 14. Now let me ask you another question. A question for me, but a question for you too. Do you sin? Do you still sin sometimes? Don't you lie, friend. I do. Brothers and sisters, I I do. Now, I know that was an unpleasant question, but I sure hope you were honest. Because if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. But back to the point. If you answered yes, in other words, if you were honest... And you said, yes, I still sin sometimes. Then you need to answer this question. Why? Why would you do that? You don't have to, so why would you do that? And 
Christian friend, let me assure you, God is not responsible for your sin. All the ones that the Son has set free are free indeed. You do not have to sin. And if you really don't have to sin, why do you do it? And the answer to that question I want to set before you this morning is this. When I sin, and I'm a Christian who doesn't have to sin, when I sin, I sin because of a lack of love. When Christians sin, it is because of a lack of love. Think back to our reading. Listen, in 1 John 5, verse 3, we were given the Johannine definition of Christian love. John wrote, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Now, what's the opposite of keeping His commandments? Sinning, right? It's a lack of love, friend. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked by a lawyer, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 and He said, Thou shalt love, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. So according to our Lord, the first and great commandment is to love God. And the beloved apostle tells us in 1 John 5, 3, that we fulfill that first commandment. That is, we love God when we keep His commandments. According to John, that is how we show love. And earlier in his epistle, he gives us the Yohanin definition of sin. And he writes, sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. Black and white John. Kind of like black and white James. Let me define my terms. Here's what I mean when I say love. And here's what I mean when I say sin. So brothers and sisters, listen, hear me please. If you are a Christian, you do not have to sin. When we sin, we break the law of Christ. We break the law of Christ by dishonoring the Word of Christ. And when we sin, we break the law of Christ and dishonor the Word of Christ and show a lack of love toward Christ. So listen, Christian sin is the direct result of a lack of love for Jesus. Now you can't see my notes up here, but Christian sin, Christian has an apostrophe after it, indicating possession, the sin of a Christian, a Christian's Sin. Christian sin is the direct result of a lack of love for Jesus. Now, <laughs> that statement is definitionally true, friend. This is not geometry, but I think I just proved it based on what John said. As we saw in his letter, the Apostle John, in context, set forth for us specific definitions for the word love and for the word sin, didn't he? And his teaching can lead to no other conclusion than that. Christian sin is the direct result of a lack of love for Christ. And that's corroborated by the Apostle's record of these words that he quotes from the lips of the Master. Listen, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. 
John 14, 15. So, the argument that Christian sin is a direct result of a lack of love towards Christ, it's got to be extended a little bit because you recall earlier, we weren't talking about sin specifically. We were discussing trouble, specifically the tribulation of a troubled mind. We weren't discussing trouble from without or troubles beyond our control. Listen, we were discussing homemade trouble. So please hear two sets of propositions. Please listen carefully. If you are a Christian, you do not have to sin. If you are a Christian and you sin, you are exhibiting a lack of love. A lack of love for your bridegroom. Now that's the first set. Now please hear the second set of propositions. If you are a Christian, your conscience has been renewed. A renewed conscience will smite the one who violates it. The smiting of the conscience leads to the troubling of the mind. Did you follow the reasoning? Oh, saints, listen. God help us. God help us when we have trouble, but God, oh God, have mercy on us when we have homemade trouble. When we cause our own trouble, God have mercy. I told you I wanted to make the argument that the internal trouble that we experience when we make wrong choices is ultimately rooted in a lack of love. And now you've heard the argument. Were you convinced? I hope you were convinced. <coughs> I hope you were convinced because <laughs> I believe that's what the holy apostles teach in Scripture. And if you were convinced by the argument, then the natural question that immediately comes to mind is... Is there a remedy? Is there a remedy? I need a remedy for what's ailing me. Is there a remedy? Well, good news, brothers and sisters. Good news. There is. There is a remedy. And the remedy is two-staged. It's a specific treatment. And it involves confession and love. Now I want you to note, notice I did not say repentance and faith. You see, repentance and faith are the graces required for salvation. Repentance and faith are on display at conversion. Repentance and faith are on display when we are married to our bridegroom. Now listen, we do not need to be married again. If we've been converted, if we are Christians, we are already married to Christ. But if we're sinning, restoration of marital peace will require confession and love. In the first or in chapter 1 of this very same epistle, the Apostle of Love writes in verse 9, quote, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, listen, besides John 3.16, I think that might be my favorite verse in all of Holy Scripture. If we confess our sins, He is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, listen, friend. (laughs) It's the same remedy that you have to use when an offense occurs in an earthly marriage, isn't it? You don't go and just get married again. Oh, we need to get married again, I guess. What? No. You humbly confess the offense, pleading for forgiveness from the one offended. And then you move forward in love. And and in the case here, that means obedience, doesn't it? That's the apostolic remedy. Confession and love. And what a sweet and smooth elixir. Do you have trouble? I know you got trouble. Do you have any self-caused trouble? Homemade trouble? If you do, I exhort you, brother, love your Lord. And I exhort you, sister, love your Lord. The love of the Master is the sweetest taste to the mind of the saint of God. And love offended, oh, how bitter. Hmm. Well, brother, sister, saint, listen. If you have offended your Lord, your bridegroom, confess it and love Him. Love Him more. Obey Him. Our Savior is faithful and just. He is righteous and loving and He will forgive sin and He will cleanse the troubled mind. He loves His bride. He loves us passionately and purely. Listen, He has given Himself for us. So let us Love Him because He first loved us. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. How full of anguish is the thought How it distracts and tears my heart if God at last, my sovereign judge, should frown and bid my soul depart. Lord, when I quit this earthly stage, where shall I fly but to thy breast? For I have sought no other home, for I have learned no other rest. I cannot live contented here without some glimpses of thy face. In heaven, without thy presence there, would be a dark and tiresome place. When earthly cares engross the day and hold my thoughts aside from thee, the shining hours of cheerful light are long and tedious years to me. And if no evening visits paid between my Savior and my soul, how dull the night. How sad the shade, how mournfully the minutes roll. This flesh of mine might learn as soon to live, yet part with all my blood, to breathe when vital air is gone, or thrive and grow without my food. Christ is my light, my life, my care, my blessed hope, my heavenly prize. Dearer than all my passions are, my limbs, my bowels, or my eyes. The strings that twine about my heart, tortures and racks may tear them off, but they can never, never part with their dear hold of Christ, my love. My God, and can an humble child that loves thee with a flame so high, Be ever from thy face exiled, 
without the pity of thine eye. Impossible. For thine own hands have tied my heart so fast to thee. And in thy book the promise stands that where thou art, thy friends must be. Please stand with me for prayer. And friend, if you have ears to hear, I hope you heard that that was the same sermon you heard across the way this morning. Press on. Love. Thou shalt love the Lord. Let us pray. Searcher of hearts, it is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, my family, my church fare worse because of my sins, for sinners bring judgment in thinking their sins are small or that their God is not angry with them. Oh, let me not take other good men as my example and think I am good because I am like them. For good men are not so good as thou desirest. They are not always consistent. They do not always follow holiness. They do not feel eternal good in sore affliction. Oh, show me how to know when a thing is evil which I think is right and good. Show me how to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle, such as desire for reputation. Oh, give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing Thy will from Scripture, of wisdom to guide others, of daily repentance, want of which keeps Thee at bay, of the spirit of prayer, of having words without love, of zeal for Thy glory, seeking my own ends of joy. Let me not lay my pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. But may I cling to Thee in love. O Savior, have mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.